0: And clericalism is this poison that basically says, you know, the only person in your church who needs to be a mature Christian is the ordained person. Everyone else is off the hook, which is preposterous. It's not the gospel. It's not Christianity.
1: The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Tony Wilson, and you've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down every week to interview a Christian who has a story to inspire and encourage. The profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity Magazine. My guest on the show today is Father James Mallon. Born into a Roman Catholic family a short distance from the Celtic Park football ground in Glasgow, he grew up in the city until he emigrated to Canada with his family at the age of 13. He later discerned a call to the priesthood and since his ordination, he has pastored several parishes in and around Halifax, Nova Scotia. Father James established an organization called Divine Renovation with the aim of assisting parishes to become missional communities. Divine Renovation now has a presence across Canada, the USA, UK, Europe and Australasia. Father James has worked as a consultant to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and he's a trustee director of Alpha International which works to grow the Alpha course across the globe. Father James, welcome to The Profile.
0: Tony, it's wonderful to be here with you.
1: Well, on The Profile, we always like to start to talk about the early years of a guest's life. So could you paint a picture for us of what it was like to grow up as a Catholic in the 1970s in Glasgow?
0: <laughs> well, it was. I didn't know it at the time, but I... I grew up what I would call now a, a, a strong Irish Catholic family. Now, if you'd have told me in the 70s that I was Irish and not Scottish, I probably would have had some choice words for you. It's funny, I just somehow didn't put together that, uh, you know, green, white, and orange tricolour flag at Glasgow Park with the fact that I was Scottish. You know, it, was, it wasn't until later, it was like, oh, yeah, my ancestors were all from Ireland. So I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Uh, we We grew up in a kind of family that... Put it this way, I've missed Sunday Mass twice in my life. Like, I mean, you, you would gouge your eyes out before you miss Mass. It was just like it was like, as for me and my family, we serve the Lord. Like that, that was just it. It was like there was there was no compromise with that. It was I, I think back going on our holidays, we'd always in the Glasgow Fair, go down to go down to Scarborough in 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 Yorkshire. And I still remember this. What an impression it made on me that. You, I remember the bags. We were in the foyer of the of, of the guest house with the check-in desk. And I remember my dad saying to my mom, okay, you check in. I'll go find out where, where when Sunday Mass is. And off he went out the door. Like, before we even checked in the room, it was like, you got to go find where Mass is. So that's the kind of orientation I grew up with. Now, at the same time, like, we were always told to say our prayers before we went to bed and to, and to pray. And I remember, you know, busting into my my dad's room one one day and finding him on his knees praying but we didn't talk about personal faith but a personal relationship with the lord god the image of god that that i imbibed uh and took on as as a as a young person was of uh an exacting god a demanding god uh, a distant god an angry god a judgmental god a god to be feared now I think we can give theological nuance to each and every single one of those statements in a way that we can say, yes, this is this is true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, the God is a, you know, God doesn't demand a little from us. He demands everything from us. He is a, a demanding and exacting God. Um, but of course, all of it is is experienced differently when it's contextualized in a in a personal relationship with the Lord. So that was the the kind of grounding I had. Now I gotta tell you this story. My dad's sister and her family had moved to Canada in the early 70s and they got involved. All we knew is that they were, they had become really religious, like kind of in a weird way. So I remember one day we got a we got a parcel from them. It arrived from Canada and we were so excited and we gathered around and we opened it up and we were so disappointed. Do you, do you know what was in the parcel? A Bible. <laughs> it was a big Bible. Oh, we were so disappointed. Anyway, so it was like, what are we supposed to do with this? So we put it on, under the coffee table, you know, where every good Catholic places their Bibles, every good Catholic family. So uh, these relatives were considered a bit strange because they'd come home from uh, on their holidays, and they'd want to lay hands on us and pray over us. They they had gotten involved in charismatic renewal. So, so we went to Canada in 1982, and when I was in high school, I got... Uh, well, I got involved in some teenage, teenage rebellious, you know, rebellion stuff and got into trouble and was forced to go on this, what I called at the time, a stupid religious weekend. But on that weekend, I, I encountered Jesus in a, in a way that totally transformed my life in a way that I didn't know was even possible.
1: That's wonderful. And I I really want to unpack that with you, that moment where you develop a personal relationship with Jesus, which sounds to be a very different type of faith experience to what you described earlier in your family. Before we unpack that, I'd like to just go back to to Glasgow, because it, it was probably the most sectarian city in mainland UK in the 1970s. and I guess you were a good Celtic supporter at the time. Was that palpable across Glasgow? Was that something? Did you did you feel that divide at all?
0: Uh, the, the first time I remember, one of my earliest memories was the day I, I don't know if I was five years old or six years old, but the day I first heard the term Catholic or Protestant, and I remember being confused because I didn't know what it meant. And I was, as every good young Glasgow boy is wont to do, I was. In the in the back green of where we lived, and I was kicking a a, a football against the wall, and this boy came down the came, came out of what we called the close, and I asked him if he wanted to play football with me, and he he said, "Are you a Catholic or a Protestant?" And I remember thinking, well, I, "I don't know." And I remember I went home to my mum and dad, and I said, "Mum and dad, am I a Catholic or a Protestant?" And they said, "Where did you hear that?" Uh, and I remember. My mom and dad, you know, they they were they they sat me down and they told me that I was a Catholic, but they also told me that there are some people that want to define one group against the other and treat the other poorly. Like my mom's best friend was wasn't wasn't Catholic, so they so the, my mom and dad were very careful to never bring us up in any kind of sense of bigotry or anything like that. And as a kid growing up, I mean, well, my 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 first best friend when I was a little kid was a little Pakistani boy in Glasgow Uh, and then I had friends and then the other time I became aware was the day of my first Holy Communion which for Catholic kids is a very important day and I remember I went out to play after after the party and I still had my white shirt on and I went out with all my regular friends and they said "Um, how come you couldn't come with us earlier on I said well I had my first communion and I just thought everyone knew what that was and they said what's that and that was, I remember thinking, oh, there are people who don't know what your first communion is. Um, so, and then before, <laughs> see, here was the thing too, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but growing up, it wasn't until I came to Canada that I actually met Protestants who actually went to church. I thought Protestants were people who protested having to get up out of bed on Sunday morning and go to church. Because <laughs> all my That's Protestant funny. friends who went to Protestant schools, none of them went to, none of them went to church. We had to go to church, and so it wasn't until I came to Canada that I encountered uh, amazing uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord who had who had the most amazing, inspiring faith. So, of course, now I now I'm much more aware of 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 where the faith people are. But the the connection with you know like Glasgow Celtic Football Club, I never made a strong connection with that, with regards to my faith. You know, my cousins who I was quite close to, uh, they went to the same school as I did and they were Rangers supporters. So it was, I never really thought about it that much. Uh, it wasn't until mm-hmm. later on in life, especially coming to Canada, you'd meet other Scots. And it's very, very interesting because you would feel it. You, you'd discover someone else from Scotland. And then the unasked question under the surface was, you know, as they say in Glasgow, which foot do you kick with? Which underneath all that, it's it, it's evident to me now that it's it's just basic tribalism. It's not mm-hmm. it it's it's very very little to do with faith, you know. And people who make these things so divisive, it's like what mm-hmm. is the what is the nature of the of the of their conception of faith, you know? It's I don't seem to be able to relate to it all that much.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I I understand that. But moving to calendar at the age of thirteen, that's a pretty pivotal age. It's sort of an age when you're beginning to get serious about academic work. Your hormones are going all over the place. <laughs> that must have been a fairly difficult move at that age to move such a distance. How did you find that?
0: In one sense, it was very, very exciting. You know, when we first moved to Canada, we moved to the small rural town and outside our front door was the ocean and and outside the back door were, were the mountains. And it was all very, very exciting. It was difficult to leave my friends at the time, but, uh, when we landed in canada all the girls thought my accent was really cute i got a lot of attention from girls which was pretty okay with me um the fitting into the school system was 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 a bit strange because they i think they didn't quite know what to do with me so it took me a while to to get um, properly calibrated to the to the canadian ways of of doing things and you add that in with the typical teenage angst and and the struggle to to fit in and get a sense of yourself, they were they were difficult years, which led me, like many teenagers, to try to find acceptance, you know, by being cool or starting to get you know involved in the party scene and all of that stuff. And yeah, and at the same time, I was I felt a, a distance from God like I'd never had before because I look back now in my childhood and there, there were moments of intimacy. There's no question. I there were moments of where I sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit, but at that time when I was a teenager, uh, God just seems just seems so distant.
1: Mm. So, so in moving to Canada, you become connected with a part of your family that's that's experienced the charismatic renewal that that took place within within the Catholic Church, which is still taking place within the Catholic Church, and and it sounds like you would touched by the holy spirit as well you baptize in the holy spirit would that be a fair thing to say how, how did that work yeah.
0: Out? yeah so i was in what we would say a grade 11 in canada which means i was 16 years old so about i think about fifth year i think it would be and i, w- I went on this retreat weekend and on that weekend it was just a prof- the initial experience was one of of God's unconditional love, you know, because I think you you strive to be under a lot of of human striving. Whether you're a teenager or, a, or an adult, is the fundamental question: Do you love me? Will you love me? Because we're made for love, we're made through love, and by love. And our you know, as Saint Augustine said, our our hearts are restless till they rest in you, O oh Lord. And I, I mean, and it, that, it's that yearning to be loved that drives all of the commercials we see on the TV and all the ads. It's all about, you know, you get this one product and you will be acceptable to people. People will love you. And it all ties in with that same hunger and that same question, will you love me? And and that night on that, on that retreat weekend, I just had this profound sense of God loving me, the Father, God the Father loving me. And here was the image that came to me that night that I had been living my entire life in a small room, and that night I broke through the wall and on the other side of the wall was this infinite space, like a lake without a ripple. This was an image that came to me. I still remember it. And the key thing is that the wall was paper thin. And it was one of those Jacob ladders moment, you know, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. Like on the other side of this wall is this infinite space. And I tapped into this. That's a piece because that's the answer, isn't it? To When we, Discover the the infinite love of God, the unconditional love of God. It quiets our soul, you know. It just brings about peace. Now, I was still very, very new in my faith. I remember that night, uh, part of the retreat, you had a chance to go to confession. Which, uh, for the non- you know, for those who are listening that might not have experienced this, it's uh, it's one of the sacraments of the church where we can have uh, uh, an encounter with the Lord, an encounter with mercy through the ministry. Of, of someone else, and and I went, I went to confession, but I wasn't ready, and I remember I sat there, and I asked the priest, I said, do I have to tell you my sins in order to be forgiven by God, and he said, no, you don't, he correctly answered, no, you don't, God, God isn't bound by the sacraments, and so that, that was good enough for me, because there was no way I was telling this dude all the stuff that I had done, um, and so I left, and it wasn't until about a year later that I finally brought all of my junk and stuff to the sacrament of reconciliation, as as I call it, a a beautiful experience of, 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 of reconciliation. Uh, But God was at work in my life. And that was, you know, that night, I, I knew that I knew that my life wouldn't be the same. I knew one thing I wanted more of this God who had revealed himself to me. I wanted more and I wanted others to know. I wanted I wanted my friends to discover this. Now, you know, it, I wouldn't have thought it thought about it this way at the time, but I look back and I see there was a desire I, I, for, to respond to the call to holiness. You know, for for more, but we need we're called to have more of our God, and I wanted others to know. So the call to mission, those those two calls that are so important. So I I finished off high school. Um,
1: I'm I'm interested because. I'm sure you've met Catholics like this, and and I have, that, that have had an experience like this, a, a personal encounter with God, and then they react rather strongly against their Catholic upbringing because they say, look, you've hidden the real Jesus from me all this time under a guise of ritual, religiosity. That, for me, feels like I've, I've been denied this personal relationship for all this time, and now I come to see... God as He is, God's revealed Himself—a God of love, a God of intimacy—and and many seem to turn their back on the Catholic Church at that point, mm-hmm. and they find themselves maybe in a Pentecostal church. But for you, you didn't feel that that pull away. You didn't resent, perhaps, the feeling you you wanted to react against that.
0: No, because it, this uh, retreat weekend was was through one of the uh, Catholic renewal movements. So in the, the Catholic Church, we have the what we call the diocesan system. The Catholic Church, the local church, is the diocese, and the the head pastor is the bishop. So if you think about that, every diocese is a is is a multi-site church, <laughs> and the head pastor is is, is is the bishop. So you have this diocesan system all over the world. Every square inch of the globe is in someone's parish, in someone's diocese. But besides the the, the diocesan system, you have what are called the movements, and they're This is where the Holy Spirit goes when he can't get into the parish system (laughs) because you can't keep the Spirit of God down. And so the Spirit of God has worked through mostly laymen and women to raise up these movements. And one of the many movements in the church in recent decades has has been a movement called the Curcio Movement, which is Spanish for for small course. And it was actually founded by a Spanish bishop who uh, I just heard recently said something that that he, he said something like this, that one of the key problems is of the in the church today is that we offer people less than what Jesus offered them, and we ask of people less than what Jesus asked of them. I thought, wow, that's really profound. Uh, so this Curseal movement was uh designed as a as a weekend retreat to awaken faith in cultural Catholics, Catholics who might not have come to personal faith. And it spread from Latin America, uh, went all over the world, and they had youth versions of it. So that was the weekend. So th- this experience I had was in a Catholic retreat. And so it was it, that, that experience. It, I mean, I can see people reacting like this. If you have this experience outside of the Catholic church, I could totally get it. Why you would say, I'd say, I'm never going back there. But this I mean, there were priests with us. It was all very Catholic and presented as this actually is the Catholic faith. Uh, and it's, it's my past experience of, of the failure to communicate this that, that ought to be rejected. So I I, was, uh, I got involved in this retreat movement. Was You came back and worked as a team member and put on these retreats for others. And what I discovered early on is that I went back to my parish with this experience I found that there was a lot of people in the parish who didn't seem to be able to relate to what I had experienced. And now I look back and I'll say that I was beginning to sense that, you know, in the parish system, you had a, what I would now call a culture, an organizational culture that was kind of a culture of, of very minimalistic, uh, very, very mediocre. And, and I started going to this, these gatherings, not just on the weekends, but on wednesday nights in the city so literally what happened is people would come from parishes all over the city and gather together on a wednesday night in this gymnasium there'd be a hundred people and we would have a celebration of the mass which was everyone was singing everyone was praying everyone knew each other the people hugging each other it was like amazing community amazing worship it was evangelistic we were being discipled we were being called to serve in ministry it was it was the fullness of of what the Christian life is supposed to be, and then I would go back to my drab, boring, dead parish. And I remember, as a seventeen-year-old, as a 16, 17 year seventeen-year-old, thinking, "Why is this like that? Like, imagine if we, if what happened on Wednesday nights became normative in every single parish all over the world, we would change the world again." And that was a, a, a question that I carried with me for many years. So I finished high school. I got. Um, I wanted to. To be a doctor. I got into a pre-med program uh, at university. I got an entrance scholarship, and I was I had this spiritual hunger. I wanted more. And a friend of mine told me about something called a charismatic weekend, a charismatic Catholic conference that was happening about a two-hour drive. And, and I didn't know what that was. I I I knew my aunt and uncle were kind of weird, but I didn't I hadn't heard these terms before. And they told me. They said, James, you'll love this. It's about the Holy Spirit. So I said, Okay, I'm going. And on that weekend, I I saw something I'd never seen before. It was a thousand people in this gymnasium. There was uh, during mass, we had, had bishops and priests dancing, dancing around the. It's like dancing in the spirit, and people raising their hands and praying and singing in this strange language. And I thought this was the strangest thing I'd ever ever experienced. But on that weekend I I was prayed over and had what I would call an experience of being baptized in the spirit. I was I was uh I experienced resting in the spirit which was like i never in a million years cuz I resisted it. I I saw people going down I thought yeah that's all fake, you know, but it happened to me and with that came the most profound sense of peace and joy that it literally lasted for days. Now I know some of you might laugh at that, but uh, it lasted for days. It eventually wore off, of course. Uh, but I went home, and I remember I was doing the dishes every night and being nice to my sister. And my parents couldn't figure out what the heck had happened to me. So, but it was there was a profound sense of closeness to God. A, a new hunger for prayer. Uh, it was a it was a marvelous time. It was a, it was a honeymoon with the Lord. So those those experiences really kind of shaped shape me and i remember even then thinking this is it it makes sense now that this experience of god's spirit you know paul says in romans 8, you know god's spirit speaks to our spirit and we cry abba father this is, it all makes sense now when we experience the, the the spirit of god it's the spirit of god that makes us know that we're children and if we're children that we're heirs and this was this a whole sense of this new identity that was now flooding into my life
1: and so this experience that you had uh the experience of the holy spirit the baptism in the holy spirit was it around this time that you started to discern a call to the priesthood because i i've read that you were in a serious relationship with uh with a girl and you were having to make a pretty serious decision well
0: the the short answer is absolutely not <laughs> i i had never In a million years, ever entertained the notion of being a priest, like celibacy? Are you kidding me? Like, forget it. I was, I was, uh, I had just struggled. Um, I had a, a couple of girlfriends in high school, so somehow I managed to pull that off. And I, in my last year of high school, I met this wonderful woman, and we ended up being boyfriend and girlfriend for I think just a little less than two years, which. You know, if you're 18 years old, that's a long time. That's like, you know, like, that's like the equivalent of 20 yeah. years or something. And she was a wonderful uh, woman of faith who came from a Dutch reform background. They called it Christian reformed. So a I, I, I Calvinist tradition. And she had wonderful, wonderful faith. And I, when I met her, I was still really rough around the edges, like really rough but I had encountered the Lord Jesus and I wasn't fully discipled at this point. I hadn't been discipled. And here's the thing. At that point, when I first met her, I had experienced Jesus as savior, but I hadn't yet submitted to him as Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still working on that one by the way, but uh, you know, it was a bit of a daily struggle, <laughs> but I, I did at one point in my first year at, at, at university, I came to the point of really surrendering my life. I had begun to experience daily prayer and reading scripture and praying with scripture. And I, 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 she was very gentle, you know, she wasn't, she was amazing, you know, and, and she kind of, um, you know, helped me as a young man by laying down some, you know, some rules, if you, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. about, about relationships. Um, and, and eventually, within that first year, I found myself in a place where I really surrendered my life to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to fall. I want to do it your way. I want to follow what you want. And that led to an, a deepening and a deepening. You now, that we also ended up in a lot of conversations about Catholic Protestant stuff. You know, she'd say, You know, you Catholics, how come you guys believe this and this and this? And, you know, you, the usual stuff the Eucharist, Mary, the saints, purgatory, blah, blah, blah. Of course, I was your typical dumb Catholic. I had never. I was like, I don't know. Uh, so I started reading. I started reading books, and I became more. It just fired me up. I became started reading. You know, not just reading scripture all the time, but starting reading books that began to explain faith and and the particular things you know that we believe as as, as Catholics, and it and it led to a lot of a lot of interesting conversations with her. But it all built so it, even in the midst of all this, I never ever thought about being a priest. Like never, never, never. Uh, I was in a pre-med program. I was I was, was gonna be a doctor and I wanted to marry her. But on Easter Sunday of that first year at university at Mass, that's at that mass I experienced the call to priesthood out of the blue, like totally unexpected.
1: So you pursued that with great haste, or was that something that took No, I to no, involve? I did a
0: Jonah. I I I I I uh I took a ship for to, to Tarshish. <laughs> I was I was like, thanks, but no thanks. I wanted nothing to do with it. Although it was a such a powerful experience. Like it was the way I experienced it was almost like I know I just in an, an instant I knew I was gonna be a priest. Like with every soul, every cell in my body I knew. Which is kind of I don't know, I guess a bit bizarre. I think I'm kind of thick. I think God has to deal with me in that way. But even with that, I, I I still dug a big hole in my subconscious and buried it and tried to run away from it. And uh, I went through the summer. I remember I worked in a soup kitchen for the summer. <laughs> and I, then I went back to school. I was doing organic chemistry, biochemistry, analytical chemistry, physical chemistry. And, and I was beginning to I'd rather be in the library reading my Bible. I, I was I was continue, continue to be involved in retreats, and my heart was beginning to be pulled. And I began to make deals with God because it was like, why are you doing that? Like, you know, you, you know, you're not gonna, you know, that's not what's gonna happen. And I wouldn't even tell the voice to shut up because that means I would have to acknowledge that the voice was there. So it was that kind of level of, of denial, which came to present uh, of that November through a particular experience where I came to a point of surrender, I was kind of confronted by the Lord in a very beautiful, gentle, loving way that, you know, he gave everything for me and I was holding back from him and it just led to within a couple of days of me surrendering and then breaking off with my girlfriend uh, and ending that relationship and going in a different direction.
1: That's pretty tough on both of you, I guess.
0: Yeah, it was, it was cataclysmic for me. That's what it felt like. <laughs> it's, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was crazy, but it, it was like I had no alternative. People would often, in the first year, people would ask me, why do you want to be a priest? i say, I don't. So what are you talking about? You're in the seminary. It's like, yeah, because God wants me to do it. I don't want to do it. And I think at the time, that was actually a fairly accurate description of where I was and how I experienced it, because it was it was a part of me. It was kind of like a... Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah twenty-one, where he's Jeremiah is complaining. You know, like uh, I get no social life anymore. I'm I'm quitting this this prophet gig. It's no good, and you know people make fun of me, and I don't get invited to parties, and and uh, so I, I I'm not going to talk anymore. But he says, you know, but then I get weary from holding it in because it's like a fire in my bones. And then he says, uh, there's different translations. He says, Lord, you have the my favorite translation says says Lord, you have seduced me and I have let myself be seduced. Um, when I read that passage years and years ago, I was like, that that's it. I was seduced, but I let myself. I didn't want it, but I wanted it at the same time. <laughs> and it's this bad <laughs> battle of wills. And so eventually after the first year, I really came to realize that that is a, a very kind of immature way of looking at things. The truth is that I think God's call in our lives always – fulfills the deepest calling in our lives the deepest desire of our hearts and that there are different levels of of happiness and fulfillment but there was a part of me that i think i would always have been restless had i not answered this call i mean god makes us free it's not like if if we say no god is like all right buddy I'll, i'll show you you know i'm done with you i'm gonna make your life miserable no god doesn't do that god will it's it's like Jesus and Peter and John t- 21 you know do, do you love me do you love me feed my lambs feed, feed my sheep and and uh the lord takes whatever yes we can give at the time um but i think that we're not going to be fully fulfilled until we've given the yes that we were created for
1: so wherever in life we we allow ourselves to go there's always a route back on to back onto the path that, that, that God has for us. And, and, or uh,
0: or, sure or that, can... that God, even if we end up taking a slightly different path, that God will, will create a new one
1: for us. Start the year enriched and enlightened with thought-provoking Christian content from Premier Christianity magazine. As a special New Year offer, enjoy a year's subscription for just £24. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. I want to move then to the point where you've got through sem- seminary, you're ordained in 1997, and you then, over the early 2000s, you you experienced parish priesthood. And I guess you come face to face with that conundrum that you've hinted at already, that you can have a really exciting, vibrant faith community, and yet parishes can seem relatively dead. Mm-hmm. Was, was this where the the idea for divine renovation started to emerge?
0: Yeah, I, I would say that the idea of divine renovation came in that first year when I was a 16, 17-year-old kid, when I was saying, why can't this be like this? Why are these realities so different? And surely it doesn't have to be this way. That was the starting point. But when I first became a pastor, I was a pastor of a small country church about a 20-minute drive outside of town. I remember, and I was doing that half time at another responsibility, but I, I remember my very first mask, looking out and thinking, oh my goodness, it was like a zombie convention. It was like, no one wanted to be there. It was like, people were looking, they looked miserable. And my heart just broke. I was like, how can people look so miserable and and, and, like, they can't wait to get, to to get out of here. Like, how do I wake How do I wake this up? And how do we reach people in this community? Because I, I had such a desire for that to happen. And at that point, a friend of mine introduced me to Alpha. He said, James, I found this thing. He said, it's called Alpha. You're, you're going to love it. So he gave me the VHS tapes. Some of you listening to this who are under the age of 40, you might have to Google this. But there were these big tapes. And I remember going home and putting it in the, the recorder and watching it. And it was uh, Nicky Gumbel. And, you know, I... Here's the thing: I'm Catholic, and I'm from Scotland, and here I've got this Anglican guy from London with a posh accent. So my hackles, <laughs> my prejudices were were up right away. But after about ten minutes of listening to, I mean, Nikki is such a wonderful, wonderful guy who's so anointed and gifted to communicate the gospel. I mean, I was won over. It was like this is amazing. Like this, the the gift he has to to proclaim the gospel message and. There were other Catholic parishes in the area running Alpha, so I learned from them, and we we decided to go for it. I described a bit of that in my first book. And we saw – this was it. Like, we saw incredible transformation happen. We saw people having their lives transformed. We saw the, the community begin to mobilize, people be inviting. We saw people who were not connected to the church get converted and come into the church. We saw people taking ownership of the mission. And the other cool thing about Alpha – is that there was a Holy Spirit weekend. And here's the thing, that experience of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, there were some things that I, there were things that all through the seminary years, it was like, I know this belongs somewhere, somehow, but I I don't have a model for it. I I don't, I have a theology for it, but not a model. How do I actually apply this in a parish setting? Well, Alpha gave me the means to do this. We had a Holy Spirit weekend. We're praying over people to be, we we didn't use the term baptised in the spirit. We just said to be filled with the spirit. I think it's a little less threatening, you know, than the term baptism. Although the term baptism in the spirit is it's scriptural. That's what John the Baptist said Jesus would do. So um we shouldn't be afraid of things. But I think sometimes we have to be careful how we we, we brand certain experiences with particular terms. So I saw people experience the Holy Spirit in powerful ways and and through Alpha I found I mean God can use any tool, but the disproportionate fruit through using this tool compared to anything else was off the charts. And so, since that time, I've been running Alpha in my parishes
1: since you know for twenty-one years now. What is it that you think is so successful about the Alpha formula? You know, what 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 for you? I mean, clearly the Holy Spirit, but but is there something about the way Alpha is yes. constructed that, that 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 makes it so successful?
0: Yes, I think there is, and I think it, it's well. I, well, number one, I think there's you don't you don't get fruit without the anointing of God. I mean, so there's there's no fruit outside of God's grace. Um, now, our God isn't a stingy God, you know. I think God uh, desires that all people come to know Him and be saved, and and but there's there seems to be a particular anointing. So, not number one, number two, I think it's a fit. It's methodology. Its core methodology is a fit with what our contemporary culture needs. There's, there's uh, if you look at the scriptural mandate, um, even uh, even in the Old Testament, there's there's the, the hero Israel, the, the Shema, right? So listen up everyone, I got something to tell you. I'm gonna tell you about God, listen up. And in the Old Testament, there's there's another invitation that says taste and see. There's a big difference between listen up everyone and taste and see. And um alpha is a is a taste and see approach. It's come and experience, come and see. And it's the whole thing again. The the it's Jesus who sets the, the model, right? In John chapter one, when he's he's uh, being followed. <laughs> it's a great scene, you know. He's being followed by uh Andrew and uh Philip, and he turns around and he says, Well, what are you looking for? You know what? What, what do you want? Uh, and then you get like the dumbest answer ever. You know, you know, where do you live? And Jesus says, "Come and see." Uh, come and see is the same as taste and see. So, number one, I think that the invitation to come and experience that that that's that tells us two things about Alpha. Number one, it's invitational, and it's a form of evangelism that is is based on currently existing relationships that you can say to people, "Come and see." It it's open ended. It's non threatening. You can come. You can stay as long as you want. The disciples stayed for a couple of hours. I don't know if they had tea with them or a cup of coffee or went to Starbucks, whatever. But they you you come and you see and you and and thirdly, it's experiential. So and then it, it sets off this chain reaction. So what Andrew and Philip do? They go to Peter and say, "We we met the Messiah. You know, like uh, come and see. Come and see. And then and then." so on and so, and, and so forth so, so the structure of Alpha being that it's um, you have, you begin with a meal and then there's a proclamation, a message and then there's time of dialogue and I think that's critical as well because again, that was the method of Jesus like uh, you know, Jesus friend of tax collectors and sinners who, who, you know, after the call of Matthew you know, he goes and has supper with Matthew and tax collectors and, and prostitutes he says to Zacchaeus come down I'm, I'm coming to your place for supper you know like jesus who even ate with the with the leaders of the synagogue and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees like jesus shared a meal with people and then he revealed himself to them and then uh, he entered into dialogue and i i think that you know when jesus says as the father sent me so i send you I think that means that it's not just about the you know the ultimate reason for mission in our churches it's about the way we go as jesus went we the church must go so the son of man came eating and drinking well guess what if you like eating and drinking you're you're in good company with the lord like so alpha begins with a meal you eat and you drink and then there's a, a message that's delivered in a compelling way uh with that you know sensitivity to people who are seeking or spiritually hungry and it it, it appeals to the mind it appeals to the heart. There are stories, beautiful stories that move the heart. There's intellectual propositions and arguments that appeal to the mind. There's there's uh, stories in in truth that's you know, spoken in a way to appeal to the conscience. And then there's an uh, an invitation to the will. At one point in Alpha, as you go down the weeks, there's a, a call to actually make a to make a choice to actually choose to be a follower of Jesus. This is an experience. Of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say two more things about Alpha because I could talk about this a lot. Alpha employs a model that is belong, believe, behave. So it it contrasts that to the traditional way of being church in the Christendom world where people generally knew how to behave. People knew what good and bad behavior was, what was acceptable, unacceptable, what was polite, unpolite. So you had to behave. And then you had to believe, and people were brought up. You went to a Catholic school, a non-Catholic school. You lived in, in where I come from now in Canada, literally in some small towns. Catholics lived on one side of the railroad tracks, and Protestants lived on the other side. Like, you know what you believed. So you behaved, you believed, and if you behaved and believed, you could belong. And in a post-Christian context, if you're going to be a missionary church, that has to be flipped around. That means we begin with belonging. And then we slowly help people come to belief by, by loving them and and bringing them, accompanying them. We bring, we slowly begin to reveal the truth of who Jesus is to them. And as they come to faith, then they begin to address issues of their lifestyle. <laughs> How often in my early years did I demand the life of a disciple from people who didn't even know Jesus? They may have been Catholics. They may have been church goers, but they didn't know the Lord. So it's uh, so... Alpha takes this model. it It begins with creating a space of believing of of belonging. You love people. It's low pressure, non-judgmental, high hospitality. The truth of the gospel is spoken over several weeks to allow the process. and then there's there's uh, you address lifestyle issues eventually. you get you get there. So I think Alpha respects this. It's also dialogic.
1: Can I just say something about the about the belong believe behave model which i think maybe is where pope francis was hinting when he said uh, a little while ago that the the sacrament of the eucharist isn't uh, isn't a prize for people who've already worked out how to be good you know and i think i think that's sort of hitting at the same idea that, that the church should be welcoming you know uh, uh, of people who are sinners tax collectors and sinners and and yes are, are to be welcomed in
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's that's the nature of the of the church. Is you know the those who were invited were too busy to come. So you know the Lord says, go out to the highways and the byways and bring in the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. You know, bring them all in. You know, we're all invited over. No, eventually, we got to put on a wedding garment, uh, which is the garment of faith. Uh, you know, so there is there there is of course a place for repentance. You know, I I'm struck. Every time we go through the Easter season and read through the Acts of the Apostles in the daily mass cycle, because in our in our we use our lectionary in our in our tradition in the Catholic tradition and, all, and for many Anglicans as well, and you we read through over the period of time huge chunks of the Bible, but you look at the the Acts of the Apostles, the the earliest description of the Christian faith is called the repentance that leads to life, the repentance that leads to life. I mean, I, I, that's actually it, it's 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 ancient and it's deeply scriptural uh, and it's a very articulate way to describe the essence of the Christian faith. So there has to be a point of repentance. Of course there does, but it's we don't just lead with repentant belief today. You know, I think we have to take more of the tact of St. Paul who goes to the Areopagus and, and says, people of Athens, I see you're very religious and you value this and you value that. And this poet over here has spoken truth and, and kind of acknowledge where God is already at work in people's lives and bring them along. I think that's one of the things that Alpha does it builds relationships it's friendship based and then if you get Alpha going in a church you know the the guests for one alpha become the inviters for the next one and you invite guests back to be on team and and then the kind of thing that I experienced on that religious weekend through the movement through the Garcia movement actually is centered right in your parish because Alpha is a tool that's used by the local church and if you run it long enough and you stick with it it will transform your entire church. And that's essentially where Divine Renovation Ministry came from, is basically deploying this evangelistic disciple-making and building tool uh, over the course of many years so that evangelism and discipleship doesn't just become a course that's off on the side. It, be- it changes your culture. It becomes the, the normative dynamic in your church. And that whole process of transforming is what we lead pastors to in Divine Renovation. now. So Divine Renovation grew up. I wrote a book about this, and it was published in 2014. It seemed to hit a nerve in the church and is now in multiple languages around the world. And there was such an influx of, of interest that we formulated this, this ministry now called Divine Renovation, which presently now we're working in 94 countries around the world, and and uh, with thousands and thousands of of, pa- of churches and pastors around the world.
1: And and so building on that experience of Alpha, you you launched Divine Innovation, and and I know that the the core idea uh, is to take a parish from maintenance to mission. So yes. I'd, I'd just like you to sketch very quickly what a maintenance parish looks like and what a mission parish looks like. What's the difference between those two parishes?
0: So when we say maintenance, we don't mean maintaining a church that's just maintaining its buildings or its processes. We mean maintaining the flock. So right away, our our listeners will appreciate that maintaining the flock is a divine mandate. (laughs) First Peter says, maintain the flock that God has appointed to you, that God has entrusted to you. And again, a reference to John 21, Jesus talking with Peter saying, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. It's, it's feeding the sheep. But see, in today's context, when we don't have a cultural force that brings people to church, if all we do is feed sheep, what we'll find is that many of the, the sheep that we feed get, get older and older and fewer. Every single year they get fewer because they die off and because the wolves are picking them off and most of the baby sheep are leaving they don't stay in the flock so if all we do is feed the sheep we're going to we're 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 going to have ongoing decline and and but it's not just an instinct of self-preservation that ought to motivate us it's obedience to the lord because the lord didn't just tell us to feed sheep he told us to catch fish he said put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch and, and the church has got to do both. That's maintenance and mission. So maintenance is caring for the sheep and everything that that involves um, and and putting out into the deep water to let down your nets for a catch. So the church has to do both. It's not an either or. It's not maintenance is bad, mission is good. Both are good. Here's the critical thing. A church whose primary concern is maintaining the flock will never get beyond itself. It becomes Inward focused and 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 become self focused and can become self centered and selfish. It becomes about us and a club. Uh, any organization that exists primarily for the sake of its own members—that's the definition of a club. And many of our churches, not just Catholic churches, many churches are are clubs, club med for religious people, and and they don't seem to give much of a care about people on the outside. And so the call to missionary conversion is first and foremost a call to, to a new identity. We, we don't, mission isn't something we do. It's something we are. We are a mission. That's what Pope Francis said in his famous Evangelii Gaudium, his encyclical. He said that mission isn't a badge you can put on and take off. He said it's not something we do. I am a mission in this world. It's, it's who we are. We are a missionary church. That's the original meaning of saying we are an apostolic church. Doesn't mean built on the successor, built on the apostles and the, their successors. It means we're simply we're a sent church. So it's identity, and then identity has to become a posture, which means it needs to change our behavior. We need to change from being uh, an inward focus huddle to an outward focus huddle. We're still connected with each other, but our gaze changes direction. We begin to look outward and begin to orient ourselves to those on the outside whether that's to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize, to bring people to Jesus, and also to go out and serve the poor, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. But it's not enough just to run the odd program. It's not enough to do this, you know, hey, it's our evangelization weekend once a year. Uh, it's We've got to normalize that orientation. And whenever we normalize behavior in, a, in any, any group of people, that's your organizational culture. So, Finally, it's a culture. So it, it's, mission is an identity, it's an orientation, and it's a culture. So the thing is that parishes that actually undergo that transformation and make their primary purpose to be mission, as opposed to maintenance, it's, again, it's not one or the other. Think about this. Churches that make mission their primary orientation, what are they doing? They're making disciples, they're forming disciples, they're equipping disciples, they're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. Ephesians four and they're sending disciples. Those churches are unlocking the giftedness of the baptized. And and so overall, churches that put mission first generally do a better job of pastoral care than churches that don't, that put pastoral care first. Because you're multiplying the giftedness, the, you're raising up the gifts of people, the, the pastoring gifts that are not just belong the, the gifts of a few, the ordained or a few specialized leaders, you're awakening the gifts of everyone. Whereas if you make fe- feeding the sheep, caring for the sheep your primary task, you're, you're kind of locking yourself in a model of church where you have a few professional clergy or lay leaders who minister to a mostly passive congregation. And when that happens, you create a culture of immaturity. You, you perpetuate immaturity. Like a, like a, a family with, with, who have children who, they're 10 years old and they still can't wipe their own noses you know, or make their own lunch. You get parents who mm-hmm. care for the kids and keep them in perpetual immaturity. And and a mission church is like a large family where the older kids are caring for the younger kids. And that's right. He says in Colossians, for this I labor to present you mature in Christ. That is the ultimate purpose of pastoral care, to present people mature in Christ. It's like parenting. The, the ultimate goal of parenting is to present your kids mature, to, to raise your kids, see them grow up. That's that's the ultimate goal, and and clericalism is this poison that basically says you know the only person in your church who needs to be a mature Christian is the ordained person. Everyone else is off the hook, which is preposterous. Is it's not the gospel. It's not Christianity.
1: So imagine I'm a I'm maybe imagine I'm a priest in the UK. I might be listening to this, uh, or I might read one of your books, and the penny's dropping that yeah I've got a maintenance church, and so I pluck up the courage to write a email to divine renovation and say help i think i think we need we need some assistance what what then does divine renovation do what's the model look like for for a parish yeah
0: it's a great question well we have uh, actually we have a team we have an office in in the uk and we're actually right now working i think with i think close over 300 churches in the uk uh even some anglican churches we're we're working with so the first thing we're looking for is a heart where is the as a person, as a pastor, because the divine renovation model very much depends on on the leadership of the pastor, it's not going to happen without that. And so, what are we looking for? We're looking for a hungry heart, a humble heart, a heart that is willing to say, "I don't have all the answers. I'm willing. To, I want to learn. I'm willing to give this a try." And the first thing we do is we have uh, staff on the ground who will reach out. Our ministry exists to inspire, equip, and connect. We want to inspire you, to give you real hope that missionary transformation is possible and it's an amazing journey even though it's a painful journey like any renovation two things are true that you'll discover if you renovate your house you discover that it's always going to cost you more than you thought and it's going to take you longer than you thought so it's costly it's it's hard to do but it will, and it takes a long time there's no quick fix but it's worth it we want to inspire you we want to equip you and so one of the first things we'll do is we invite you into a group coaching we have uh, often a group of pastors who will we will go through a, a video series and do group coaching together. And from the group coaches, we discern as a ministry who we're going to invest in because Divine Renovation is 100% donor funded. So we don't charge anything. So we, we want to discern carefully who has the potential, who has the hunger, who are the, the pastors that we want to coach into. And then if we, we've got a coaching stream, intensive coaching stream, and we've got other streams for people who are not going to be, who might not be ready to go into that intensive coaching. We also do a lot of online webinars, in-person gatherings around the world in the UK. We have conferences. We're doing a big uh, national conference next year in the UK. Uh, I I forget where it's happening. Uh, but <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on in this ministry, so I, I lose track. But the, the point is that if, if you're hungry, if you desire to undergo this journey, we want to inspire you, we want to equip you, and we want to connect you. This is one of the most important things. We want to connect you with other pastors who are striving to do the same thing in your context or in other contexts, because sometimes it's a hard thing to do by yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. How do you respond to the critic, the cynic in the church uh, who might say, oh, this is just a management consultancy model of church growth. This uh, This is just management speak. Do you hear that criticism? Ever?
0: Oh, yes. Yes. The, the thing is, for the most part, we don't. There's so many people who actually want to work with us that we don't waste any. We don't waste too much time uh, answering the critics because you could give them the most perfect answer and they still wouldn't move their hearts. You know, cynicism is, is a real spiritual cancer and I'm just not going to waste any time with it. But I, I think on the more positive side of it, like our basic model, when we. When others began to ask us about it, we had to step back and say, well, what actually is this? I mean, is it everything that's in this original book? No. And, and we discerned three keys. You see it in our logo. We have a, a key ring and three keys. And keys open doors. And this is the door that moves you from, from maintenance to mission. And the three keys, and this comes out of our experience. It's not that we thought this up in a an ecclesial laboratory and apply, and we tried it out. No, we, we, we did a bunch of stuff, and some of it worked, and we discerned what it was that worked. And we, we discovered three keys, the things that actually make the difference. The first is the power of the Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no new evangelization, new wave of evangelization without a new Pentecost. So, you know, Jesus said in Luke 24, stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Do not try to do this on your own power. That is a fundamental principle. And, and in Acts chapter 1, you know, wait, remain in the city until you experience the promise of the Father, the the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we could talk, I could talk for a couple of hours around what that actually means, but I won't. We don't have time. The second key is the primacy of evangelization or evangelism. And that means, as Pope John Paul II said in 1984, that evangelization in the church must be primary. It must be uh, preeminent and preferential. Now, Work out what that means in your context, but it means we can't just talk about it. We've got to do it. And we we ask that our all of our churches we work with choose a tool of communal evangelization that's accessible to people outside the church. We highly recommend Alpha. We think Alpha is the best, but you don't have to. You can you can choose other tools besides Alpha. Um, and then the third key is the best of leadership. And that's a whole world of of teaching and and learning. Um, one of the things we we call pastors to do is to move from from leading as solo as lone ranger leaders, which is often the case, or in a best case scenario, you might have pastors who lead a team, to move from leading a team to leading out of a team, which is kind of um, a form of shared leadership, but not. Lead, but it's not leadership by committee, and it's not mere consultation either. It's actual uh, shared leadership. For the pastor is still the pastor. So, so it's these three things together. So you can have the best of leadership and best of management and consultancy and all this, but without the power of God, without the Holy Spirit, it's not going to get you. It's only going to get you part way. So it's these three things together that are are the three keys of the divine renovation model.
1: Do you see the Holy Spirit breaking down those church divisions? Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. We pray for the unity of the church. We work towards that unity. But it's it's a difficult, difficult task to bring about. What's your hope for church unity?
0: Well, I think, you know, full corporate church unity is, you know, I think, quite probably an eschatological reality something that we'll only see fulfilled when, when Jesus returns, but that doesn't mean that we we can't work uh, at the grassroots level. And I see incredible things happening at the grassroots level. And it begins with recognizing that we we love and serve the same Lord and, and where there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we are already are brothers and sisters. Yeah. We may have been like a, not talking to each other for a couple hundred years and Beating each other up at different times and suspicious and hostile, but uh, I believe that the 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 moment the season we're in right now is a is a, a season is going to be a season of great unity and I I discover it all the time. You know, I think there's a re a, a redrawing of the of of the lines in a sense. So if you think about it, for centuries since the Reformation, that along the church there was a kind of uh, horizontal line: Catholics and Protestants, or whatever you know, Orthodox. You get these divisions, but now the line has shifted from being horizontal to vertical, and it really is, mm-hmm. I think, great commission churches or non great commission churches. Do you believe that Jesus has given the church a mission? Do you believe in evangelization? Do you believe that the Lord wants to have a personal relationship with us and and fill us with the Spirit and equip us to be his, you know, to complete His mission on earth? And I, I think to be and underneath all that is. You know, do we actually believe in revelation? Do we believe that Christian faith is given to us as opposed to something we can vote on and change at will? Uh, so th- these are very different ways to, to conceive the church, and I think we find Catholics and Protestants on both sides of that vertical line. And so I think it's a real draw, a redrawing of things. Uh, all I know is that I ex- be- experience deep fellowship and and with uh, s- some of my closest friends are non non Catholic church leaders that I have a profound relationship with
1: Wonderful. Father James thank you very much for your time it's been a great pleasure Tony thank you you've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine